Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, December 16, 2014. I'll begin this week with some news from Washington about the status of the $1 trillion-plus government spending package and what was done to avoid the government shutdown last week. I'll also talk about the progress of tax extender legislation. Next, I'll discuss a tax reform bill that was introduced by House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp and what that introduction could mean for different tax credit programs. I'll close out the general section with an update on House Ways and Means Committee appointments for the very important subcommittee on select revenue measures. I also have a brief update on the Senate Finance Committee. In our local housing tax credit section, I have some great news about the long-awaited funding of the National Housing Trust Fund, as well as the Capital Magnet Fund. Next, I'll talk about what affordable housing supporters said about the importance of the 9% low-income housing tax credit floor, as well as the CDFI bond guarantee program at a Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs hearing last week. Then, I'll discuss a new bill that was introduced to change the frequency of certain income recertifications. In this week's New Markets Tax Credit segment, I'll share the findings of a New Markets Tax Credit Coalition Economic Impact Report. Turning to historic tax credit news, I have an update from North Carolina and the strong support the governor has shown for extending the state historic tax credit. That's the credit that's set to expire at the end of this month. Finally, in our renewable energy tax credit section, I'll talk about a new report that highlights the importance of extending and expanding the renewable energy production tax credit and investment tax credit. I'll also let listeners know that it's not too late to nominate projects for the Novogratik Renewable Energy Power Awards. I'll share with the listeners the new deadline for submitting nominations. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, a government shutdown was averted last week when the U.S. House and ultimately the Senate passed the Consolidated and Further Continuing Appropriations Act of 2015, commonly referred to the combined acronym CR Omnibus or CROMNIBUS. Funding for much of the federal government was scheduled to run out December 11th. However, the House passed the Cromnibus bill before the deadline and also passed short-term funding extensions to give the Senate time to pass the full Cromnibus bill. President Barack Obama signed the short-term extensions following the House passage of the broader appropriations bill. The Senate then passed the proposed legislation on Saturday. That's a $1 trillion-plus bill. and that bill would fund most of the government through September 30th, 2015. The Homeland Security Department is funded for only a few months. President Obama is expected to sign the bill in the next day or two. Now, I'd like to share some of the main figures that I think would be of most interest to listeners. If you have additional questions, feel free to reach out to Peter Lawrence in our Washington, D.C. office. The bill provides the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, 
$45.4 billion in gross discretionary budget authority for fiscal year 2015. I say gross because there are certain FHA receipts and such that count against that, so the net discretionary budget is lower. Now, that $45.4 billion in gross discretionary budget includes $9.7 billion for Section 8 project-based rental assistance. It has $19.3 billion for tenant-based rental assistance, $900 million for the Home Investment Partnership Program, and $3 billion for the Community Development Block Grant Program. The bill extends HUD's Rental Assistance Administration Program, or RAD, through 2018, and perhaps more importantly, or as significantly, raises the cap on the number of public housing units that can participate from 60,000 to 185,000. It permanently extends the second component of RAD, which consolidates several legacy rental assistance programs into Section 8. The agreement also provides $231 million for the Community Development Finance Institutions Fund. That's $5 million more than the fiscal year 2014 enacted levels. And the bill also authorizes an additional $750 million for the CDFI Bond Guarantee Program. You can find a copy of the legislation at www.novaco.com slash hottopics. In addition to the government spending package, one of the other big items on the congressional to-do list is to deal with more than 50 expired or expiring tax provisions. On December 3rd, the House passed a bill that would provide a one-year extension. However, the Senate has yet to vote on it. We do expect a vote, though, in the next day or two, as it is the last order of business before the current Senate adjourns. For the most current updates on the status of extenders legislation, follow me on Twitter. My username is Novogratik. In other general news, the move for comprehensive tax reform in the next Congress kicked into high gear last week with the introduction of a tax reform bill in the House and the release of a Senate Finance Committee report on the same subject. Nearly 10 months after he released the discussion draft, outgoing House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp formally introduced his tax reform legislation, called the Tax Reform Act of 2014. Camp's proposal calls for comprehensive tax reform. Introducing it was a symbolic move, done during the lame duck session of Congress. But Camp clearly hopes that his legislation will be a starting point for tax reform discussion in 2015. His proposal retains the low-income housing tax credit, though some significantly adverse adjustments to it. His proposal is silent on the new markets tax credit. It doesn't repeal the statutory language, but it also doesn't provide additional funding. And his proposal proposes the repeal of the historic tax credit and renewable energy tax credits. Camp's legislation would likely change the LHCC in a variety of ways, as I mentioned, in a number of ways that aren't very good. However, it did provide a general increase of 5% in funding. But one of the adverse changes, of course, was including an expiration of the 9% rate floor and likely repeal of the 4% low-income housing tax credit. Now, the legislation that was introduced had no modifications from the draft, That was released in February, or at least as far as we could tell. In a press release announcing the introduction of the bill, Camp, who as you know is a Republican from Michigan, said he hoped that the move would spur further action on the issue in the 114th Congress, which begins in January. Camp's proposal didn't generate much support when he released the draft, as you may recall. However, you might also recall that at the beginning 
of the 113th Congress, nearly two years ago, House Speaker John Boehner symbolically reserved House Bill Number H.R. 1 for tax reform legislation. Reserving H.R. 1 for tax reform legislation was a way for the Republican leadership in the 113th Congress to emphasize the importance of tax reform. Well, Camp's proposal when it was introduced last week was introduced as H.R. 1. Now, Paul Ryan of Wisconsin will take over the Ways and Means Committee in the new Congress. And Orrin Hatch of Utah will become the Senate Finance Committee Chairman. Now, now Camp's retiring from Congress at the close of the session, and of course that's why Paul Ryan is taking over as chairman. Now, the same day that Camp introduced his bill, the Senate Finance Committee Republican staff released a report that outlines issues policymakers will face as they attempt comprehensive tax reform. This report is titled Comprehensive Tax Reform for 2015 and Beyond. I myself would emphasize the beyond. It's a 340-page document that includes suggestions on individual, business, and international tax reforms. While the low-income housing tax credit, new market tax credit, store tax credit, and renewable energy tax credit are not specifically mentioned, the report does call for permanency and certainty in the tax code. Now, I say not mentioned. There is a listing of the top 10 corporate tax expenditures, and the low-income housing tax credit is mentioned there. And I'd invite you to go back and look at previous blog posts where I address that issue. Now, those credits the low housing tax credit, new markets, historic, and renewable energy, have largely received short-term extensions in recent years, or some portion of them have received short-term extensions. Historic tax credit obviously hasn't. Congress has been debating their merits during these short-term extensions for all or part of those various provisions. These various short-term extensions has caused uncertainty for investors. Now, the report said that some tax credits, specifically the research and development tax credit, should be enhanced and made permanent. So it is important to note that this discussion analysis report does uh, suggest making the research and development tax credit permanent. It then also, though, called for the elimination of most corporate tax expenditures. And clearly, the local housing tax credit, new markets, historic, and renewable energy do show up in a corporate tax expenditure column, albeit uh, they are purchased tax credits, and as such, we believe should be handled differently. Now, the report said that, and I quote, most literature supports the elimination of most tax incentives in the corporate tax code, end quote. Now, Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah, who is the ranking member, and as I noted earlier, is to become the chairman of the committee, authored the introduction to the report. With Hatch, a Republican, taking the top spot, it is expected that this report will help guide his committee through the process. In the introduction, he wrote that tax reform is, and I quote, necessary and vital to our nation's economic well-being, end quote. Hatch acknowledged the difficulty of the undertaking, admitting that there are numerous competing priorities. He said the goal should be to engineer a tax system that enhances efficiency, fairness, and simplicity. Hatch also said comprehensive tax reform would require the participation of both Republicans and Democrats. To see the House legislation or the Senate report, go to www.novico.com slash hot topics and click on the tax reform tab. And if you have any particular insights about the Senate report, send an email to cpas at novaco.com. Next, I'd like to share news on the makeup of the House Ways and Means Committee for the 114th Congress. Now, as I mentioned, current Chairman Dave Kemp's retiring at the end of the year, and Chairman-elect Paul Ryan will take the helm. 
At that time, Republicans will hold 24 Ways and Means seats. By comparison, Democrats will have 15. That's down from the current 16 Democrats. That's because Representative Chris Van Hollen, a Democrat from Maryland, previously gave up his panel seat in the current Congress for Representative Allison Schwartz, a Democrat from Pennsylvania. And Schwartz decided not to run for re-election, so Democrats effectively lost her seat with the shift of the party ratios resulting from the midterm election losses. Van Hollen announced he would continue to give up his seat, this time to Representative Linda Sanchez, a Democrat from California who already has a spot on the Ways and Means Committee. Now, incoming Chairman Paul Ryan did announce the subcommittee chairs, and we can report that when Congress convenes next month, Select Revenue Measures Subcommittee Chairman will be Dave Reichert from Washington State. The current chairman, Pat Tiberi, has terminated out of the chairmanship, but will stay on the committee. Following the announcement of his appointment earlier this month, Reichert said in a statement, and I quote, Among the issues facing our nation, reforming our tax code is one of the most critical. Our businesses must be given the opportunities to grow, invest, and hire without a tax code that hinders this ability, end quote. In addition to Chairman Reichert and Pat Tiberi, this subcommittee will include returning members Eric Paulson from Minnesota, Tom Reed from New York, and Todd Young from Indiana. They'll be joined by Mike Kelly from Pennsylvania and Jim Renacci from Ohio. Now, why is this particular committee so important to the tax credit community? Well, the Select Revenues Measures Subcommittee has jurisdiction over the country's most important tax credit programs. With that said, I think listeners will find it encouraging to hear that similar to last year's committee, this year's subcommittee members have all demonstrated their support for various tax credit incentives. In fact, each member of the subcommittee, including Reichert, signed on earlier this year as co-sponsors of T. Berry's 9% floor bill, H.R. 4717. It'll be interesting to watch how the new subcommittee will handle the issue of tax reform. And turning to the Senate quickly, the membership of the Tax Writing Senate Finance Committee was announced, and three Republican members were added, Senators Dan Coates from Indiana, Dean Heller from Nevada, and Tim Scott from South Carolina. As always, I'll have the latest updates for you on Twitter, so be sure to follow me on at Novogratik. To start off our local Petrot section, I have news that many of us have been waiting for, for at least six years. The Federal Housing Finance Agency, or FHFA, last week authorized Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to fund the National Housing Trust Fund and Capital Magnet Fund. As many of our listeners know, the funds were established by the Housing Economic Recovery Act of 2008, or HERA, to provide financing for the production and preservation of affordable housing. HERA directed both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to make annual contributions to the funds. Unfortunately, no contributions were made. That's because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac went into conservatorship in 2008, and the FHFA placed a temporary suspension of its contributions to the funds. For the past six years, affordable housing advocates have urged the FHFA to lift the suspension. When Mel Watt became FHFA director last year, there was great anticipation that he would allow contributions to the funds. In July, nearly 80 members of the House of Representatives sent Watt a letter asking him to begin funding the Housing Trust Fund. Their request has finally been granted. Watt wrote separate letters last week to the heads of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, directing them to start setting aside allocations for the funds. Watt said that circumstances have changed and the set aside an allocation would no longer contribute to the financial instability of the enterprises. This announcement is great news for affordable housing supporters. Most grants from the Housing Trust Fund 
would be for affordable rental housing that targets extremely low-income households. Similarly, the Community Development Financial Institutions, or CDFI fund, provides competitively awarded grants to CDFIs and qualified housing nonprofits through the Capital Magnet Fund. Capital Magnet Fund awards can be used to finance affordable housing as well as related economic development activities in community service facilities. Now, I note that we're not actually expecting funding to happen until 2016, and we do roughly estimate about $240 million for the Housing Trust Fund and about $160 million for the Capital Magnet Fund. But stay tuned for more calculations and more on when funding will actually take place. Now, among those who applauded Watt's decision was Department of Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro. In a statement last week, Castro said that the decision to release resources for the Housing Trust Fund will help people across the nation secure a decent place to call home. Castro also said that HUD will soon issue regulations to implement the Housing Trust Fund. Another supporter is ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee, Representative Maxine Waters, a Democrat from California. Waters is a co-author of the legislation that created the Housing Trust Fund. And on a related note, the FHFA separately released an interim final rule implementing a statutory prohibition against Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac passing the cost of the allocations through to the originators of loans they purchase or securitize. We posted copies of the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac letters, as well as the interim rule, on our website. You can find it at www.novaco.com slash hottopics. If you have any questions about these funding sources, please contact my partner Susan Wilson in our Austin, Texas office at 512-340-0420 or contact Peter Lawrence in our Washington, D.C. office. In other news, two of four witnesses last week at a Senate subcommittee hearing called for congressional action on low-income housing. The hearing was titled Inequality, Opportunity, and the Housing Market, and it was before the Senate's Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Subcommittee on Housing, Transportation, and Community Development. Julia Gordon of the Center for American Progress called on lawmakers to extend the 9% low-income housing tax credit rate floor until the end of 2015. Gordon, whose organization is a nonpartisan think tank, spoke widely about housing. When it came to what policymakers should do to assist low-income renters, she was very pointed. Gordon said that the low-income housing tax credit's program success should lead to its extension, or extension of the 9%, because it doesn't need to be extensive in full, because it finances approximately 90% of the affordable rental housing developed every year. Gordon said it was insufficient to extend the 9% credit floor for only the end of 2014, which the current one-year extenders bill does. She asked for it to be extended at least through the end of 2015, so there would be a full benefit for another year. An extension of the low-income tax credit 9% floor would bring more investors into the market, creating more opportunities for low-income housing to be built. Meanwhile, Wayne Meyer, president of New Jersey's largest nonprofit community development finance institution fund, also testified. He asked Congress to expand the CDFI bond guarantee program. Meyer said there is insufficient access to long-term capital that's needed for large-scale affordable housing rental investments. He said that the CDFI bond guarantee program could transform the ability of CDFIs to foster large-scale creation of affordable rental housing, and he called for its extension and expansion. Now, as you may note, the CDFI fund bond guarantee program expired on September 30th, and his, President Barack Obama's fiscal 2015 budget process did propose extending it, and, as I noted earlier, the final Cromnibus did provide or authorize an additional $750 million. To see the hearing or to read the remarks by Gordon and Mayer, 
Go to www.banking.senate.gov and click on the Hearings tab. In other affordable housing news, a bill that would reduce the frequency of income recertification for public housing and the HUD voucher program was introduced in the House of Representatives earlier this month. The bill would reduce the requirement for recertification from once a year to every three years. This would be a great benefit and reduce the burden on both tenants and property managers, making affordable rental housing a little bit more efficient. At least that's my opinion. Now, such recertification is required for those who live in low-income public housing or who use the voucher program. The law would apply to households whose income is at least 90% fixed, or comes from 90% 90 of their income is from fixed income. Most often, this would be seniors and other individuals and families on a set income. It would apply to those whose incomes don't increase beyond a common inflation-based adjustment factor. Such tenant income reviews are done by public housing agencies and owners and are often time-consuming. And I should note, expanding this to affordable low-income housing tax credit properties or low-income housing tax credit properties could be very beneficial. Now, getting back to public housing agencies and owners, decreasing the frequency of such reviews would save significant time and reduce the potential for disruption to housing due to errors in the recertification process. And it also might encourage more privately owned housing operators to accept vouchers since it would reduce the administrative burden. The legislation was introduced by Representative Earl Permalter, a Democrat from Colorado, and Representative Steve Stivers, a Republican from Ohio. The legislation also calls for the HUD secretary to define the term fixed income which has generally included Social Security or Supplemental Security Income, SSI. The bill was referred to the House Committee on Financial Services. It amends the Housing Act of 1937, and its official title is H.R. 5776, the Tenant Income Verification Relief Act of 2014. Now, I should note, it's introduced in the 113th Congress, would need to be reintroduced next year, but it does get it out there to get some level of support. For more information, contact my partner, Lance Smith, in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. In New Markets Tax Credit news, the New Markets Tax Credit Coalition released a report last week. The report examines the economic impact of the New Market Tax Credit program from 2003 to 2012. I'd like to highlight some of the key findings from the report. During that period, new market tax credit investments generated nearly $118 billion in economic activity, creating more than 744,000 jobs in low-income, rural, and urban communities. The report notes that the federal tax revenue generated by the new market tax credit investments exceeds the cost of the program. For example, in 2012, the new market tax credit generated $15.2 billion in economic activity. This activity, in turn, generated $984 million in federal tax revenue, which exceeds the $800 million scored cost of the program in 2012. The new market tax would also benefit state and local governments, generating $542 million in state and local tax revenue in 2012. The report discusses location and industry sector turns that have occurred during the past decade, such as increased investments in communities with high levels of distress, more investment in rural communities, and a shift away from retail and food service-related industries in favor of community facilities such as healthcare centers, single-family housing, educational facilities, and grocery stores. The New Market Tax Credit Coalition also discussed the New Market Tax Credit and the future of tax reform. It said that incentives like the New Market Tax Credit should 
be the centerpiece of the anti-poverty plank of tax reform proposals as Congress discusses pro-growth tax reform. While the cost of the new market tax credit is small, it delivers nearly $10 billion in total project financing each year to capital-starved communities, this all according to the report. To read the report, go to www.newmarketscredits.com. It's titled, A Decade of the New Market Tax Credit, an Economic Impact Analysis. Let's move on to our historic tax credit section, where I have an update to a news item I shared last week. As I mentioned in last week's episode, North Carolina's state historic tax credit expires at the end of December. Well, North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory called on state legislators last week to restore the historic credit. During a meeting of the North Carolina League of Municipalities, McCrory asked attendees to push for a restoration. He said he's put together a coalition of architects, real estate professionals, and town leaders to promote the return of the historic tax credit. McCrory earlier praised the credit during the grand opening of the headquarters of a high-end office furniture manufacturer. During his visit to High Point, McCrory highlighted the improvements to the historic old picket cotton mill area. He said the HTC historic tax credit was the key to investments there and said, quote, that's exactly why the historic tax credit is so important to North Carolina, end quote. Now, the North Carolina historic tax credit does expire on December 31st, and that has been the topic of much debate. According to the state, historic tax credit developments have brought nearly $1.5 billion of private investment to North Carolina through nearly 2,500 projects, all that since 1998. Ninety of the state's 100 counties have had historic rehabilitation developments. McCrory included a less expensive version of the expiring credit in his 2015 budget, but unfortunately it fell short of approval in the state Senate. To learn more about the state historic tax credit in North Carolina and in other states that offer such a program, contact my partner Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office at 216-298-9000. In renewable energy tax credit news, I'd like to discuss a recent report by the Environment Illinois Research and Education Center that advocates for 30% of the United States' electricity to come from wind energy by the year 2030. That goal aligns with the Environmental Protection Agency's proposed clean power plan. According to the report, wind power currently generates 4% of the country's electricity. The report credits what it calls the explosion of wind power over the past 10 years to the success of the production tax credit and investment tax credit. Extending and expanding these programs is essential because improvements in technology and government policy were the primary drivers of wind energy growth, found the report. At the federal level, tax policies like the production tax credit reduced the risk of wind energy investments and spurred investments across the country. Like many other studies have found, The report said that while the PTC and ITC have been key contributors to the growth of wind industry during the past decade, legislative uncertainty hampers continued expansion. Renewing and expanding these policies with long-term goals in mind would go a long way toward encouraging future growth in the wind energy industry. To read the report, go to www.energytaxcredits.com. The report is titled, More Wind, Less Warming, how American wind energy's rapid growth can help solve global warming. In other news, I'd like to announce that the deadline for submitting nominations for the 2014 round of the Novogratz Renewable Energy Power Awards has been extended. 
will accept nominations until January 15, 2015. The annual awards recognize renewable energy tax credit projects that have had a positive effect on job creation and their host community's energy footprint. We're accepting nominations in three categories, financial innovation, overcoming obstacles, and small community projects. Once again, financial innovation, overcoming obstacles, small community projects. To be eligible, projects must have been placed in service between January 1, 2013 and November 1, 2014. Now, winners will be honored at the Novogradic Financing and Renewable Energy Conference, which is going to be held April 23rd and 24th in Las Vegas. For more information and nomination materials, go to www.novaco.com awards. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter for the latest updates. This is Michael Novogradic. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.